on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Coming up next, America Can We Talk with your host, Debbie Georgianos. And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today in our show, we're going to talk about Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism rising. Cannot wait to tell you this story. We have an in-house guest, an in-studio guest. I'm so glad he's here today. Texas State Senator Tan Parker. You're all about Texas and the issues that are facing many states, including Texas. Mr. Jack Smith goes to the Supreme Court and Trump derangement syndrome rages on. I've Amazing story about him. And finally, if we get to it, the surveillance state is expanding. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. My first story today, I want to go back to the close of World War II. And uh, President Eisenhower ordered at the close of World War II, he ordered that media around the world cover what had been uncovered by the troops, the American troops and others, about the Holocaust. He actually, the discovery of the massive number of internment camps, the millions murdered, the evidence of brutality, Eisenhower wisely and in a very prescient way said, in the future, people won't believe this. They won't believe what actually happened. So Eisenhower ordered the American media, American troops over there to take pictures, to publicize what exactly they uncovered uh, from the Holocaust. And part of that was even uh, trying to force local German citizens who lived near these internment camps to actually go and look at what had been happening very nearby their homes. I tell you that story because we're at an amazing place in America today. There was polling out of the um, uh, very prominent polling agencies, two of them, YouGov and The Economist. So these are, these are not right-wing or left-wing. They're just pollsters who are reporting. This is a true story. 20% of college-age Americans say the Holocaust was a myth. 20%. And it goes on from there, breaking down. Oh, the other interesting thing out of this, but so that was 20%. They say college age, they're counting 18 to 29, a little older than college, 18 to 29, 20% believe the Holocaust was a myth. And even larger portions doubt uh, whether it was extreme as described, doubt whether it's exaggerated. Uh, but the numbers above the age of 65 who agree that the Holocaust was a myth, the, the polling, 0%. People old enough to remember what happened, have learned history, they, they know it was true. But what we are experiencing now, and the reason I want to talk about this story, is because when you hear people in America very, very concerned about what students are taught in schools and how the Holocaust is presented, not just the Holocaust, other issues too I'll get to in a moment, but there has been a push in America to convince people by some element, by frankly, anti-Semitic elements in America, 
pushing the notion that either the Holocaust never occurred at all or it's grotesquely exaggerated. It was maybe 10 or 20,000 people who, who perished. And the idea of this is to diminish the reality of what actually occurred. And what it ends up doing is because people, especially activists in the Jewish community, keep wanting to push the idea, we all have to remember what the Holocaust was, what it did, how many suffered, the brutality of the medical experiments done on prisoners, the effort to push memory of the Holocaust is itself mocked and ridiculed by those who are down this path of trying to minimize it. And so when you are a young person, you've come up through schools in America uh, and at a very different time than many of us did, many of the people, certainly people above 65 did, so you have people not really knowing what the truth is. They've attended schools where this Holocaust denial or Holocaust minimization effort has taken hold in their curricula. And so it gets around to what I've been talking about recently in the show, the number of astonishing anti-Semitic incidents happening around the country. And you know, if you don't know, if you literally grew up in the time when your school told you that you know there was basically not a Holocaust at all, or it was very minor, it was no big deal, it's being exaggerated by those with sympathy toward Israel, whatever the argument is, then when you are facing uh, the world today and hearing about all the concerns about anti-Semitism, you're kind of sympathetic to the people who are, are just tired of hearing about anti-Semitism. And all of this now is really taking, is uh, rising up in, in public understanding because of what happened in Israel on October 7th. The Hamas attack, which I know I tell you all the time, Hamas is just simply another word for radical Islamic jihadists. That's all they are. Hamas is not an evil by itself organization. Hamas is rooted in the teachings of Islam, in the Quran, the jihadist teachings. That's why Hamas did what they did in Israel on October 7th. And you have students in, our, in America, all around, major universities, joining in chants, sympathetic for the Palestinians, and chanting the uh, racist, murderous, chant that goes along, you know, from sea to shining, it's not, I'm not going to say the right, the correct words, but the gist of it is, from the river to the sea, you know, blah, 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 Palestine will be free. It's an advocacy for destruction of the state of Israel, an advocacy for killing all the Jews in Israel. That is what, on college campuses today, you are hearing young people, not on obscure, crazy, far-left campuses, UCLA, USC, many prominent schools around the country are experiencing marches where the students are actually chanting, whether they know or not what, they, what it means, they're chanting and encouraging the destruction of Israel. And they're doing it because we did not do a good job in this country helping the young people understand what actually happened in World War II, what actually Israel really is, the size of Israel, the minute size of Israel, and what is motivating the people attacking Israel. We have sympathy for the Palestinians because that has been taught in the public schools. Of course, every child, whatever their race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, religion, every child should be free of and not have to deal with murderous attacks on their communities. But Israel has no way of freeing themselves from the attacks coming from Hamas and promised again coming from Hamas without getting into the Gaza Strip. And ferreting out, getting rid of all of the entrenched Hamas machinery, weapons, and military. I'm going to close the first five by showing you a map. My wonderful Mr. Emilio has a map. Okay, stare at this map for a second. I know I put it up last week. We're going to talk about it again. The countries in green on this map 
which are you know, surrounding Israel, they're part of the Middle East, all those countries are a Muslim majority. Many of them engage in, they have as their system of laws, Sharia, whether it is harsh Sharia or some watered down version, Islamic law rules those countries. All that geographic space that is in green are Muslim majority countries surrounding Israel that, are, that have freedom of people to practice Islam, freedom of people to to be as adherent as they, they want to be to uh, Islamic teachings. That tiny little red dot, it's actually not quite in the middle of the picture, it's a little bit off to the top and to the right, that's Israel. And so that little red dot that is Israel, surrounded by Islamic majority countries, and now picture that little red dot that is Israel, Gaza Strip is only a tiny portion of Israel. So what, when you hear these students in America chanting, Palestine free from the river to the sea, they're talking about a minute, a tiny segment of that tiny red country that are people who are, and there's no such thing as Palestinian, there's not a national origin called Palestinian, that's a concocted charade designed to engender sympathy. It is just people who live in Gaza Strip, the majority of them are of Jordanian descent, they are Jordanese, they are not Palestinian is not an ethnicity. It is just a, a name taken from the Bible to engender the confusion, cause you to think these people actually live in that area. These are Jordanian majority people living in the Gaza Strip who elected Hamas, elected Hamas as their government in 2006, I think it was. And so that's what we're battling about, that tiny little strip within that tiny little red country when all the other surrounding countries are, are you know, Muslim majority and Jordan recently announced, the King of Jordan recently announced, they will not take any Gaza refugees. They, they, in fact, we talked about this in a show recently, but there's a lot of documentation with, within the Muslim Brotherhood that leaving this, this um, Islamic, this Arab Islamic population living within Gaza Strip, it gives the people who manipulate our thinking, manipulate the world thought, it gives them a continuing uh, argument that these, there's oppression of Arabs within uh, Israel, when the fact is, it's, it's a tiny portion, and within Israel, I, I've gone longer than five already, I know, but within Israel, my husband and I have visited there many times, my husband's business partner is an Israeli citizen, uh, we've been, we know a lot about Israel. In Israel, everyone can vote, including Jewish citizens, Muslim citizens, Arab citizens, everyone can vote. You have, just like America, the right to vote if you're a citizen. That is what is true in Israel, even for people um, who are anti-Israel, who are Muslim, who, who do want to fight against the existence of Israel, even they can vote within Israel. That's what we have in Israel, and that's the battle we have today. In America, I, I'm trying not to get angry with the young students who are chanting, urging the destruction of Israel because they actually are the products of ignorance. They have no idea what they're talking about. They've been taught incorrectly and falsely, so they don't know. They think that this is an oppressed group, and it is actually Israel that is relentlessly oppressed by their surrounding Islamic-majority countries. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. So you have joining us in studio. I mentioned we have a guest in the studio, which is always fun. Um, and he is a Texas state senator. Um, he's actually one of the, I mean, our, our, we'll hear more about the Senate in a moment. He's a very popular Texas state senator um, because he has been, uh, he listens to the people. He meets with constituents. He pushes the issues people care about. And I've heard him, it was kind of a funny thing last week. I think it was three days in a row. I ended up seeing him at various events. So, you know, I heard him speak recently, uh, recently but I'll quickly tell you 
his background. His name is Tan Parker, and he is a, a businessman by background. Um, he, before serving the Texas State Senate, he served in the Texas State House. So he was a House member from 2007 to 2023, and a Senate member uh, as of this year. So he's from this area, roughly speaking, North Texas, and um, he's just a, a really active listening, engaged senator. Uh, he does not phone it in, as they say. So welcome to the show, Texas State Senator Tan Parker. Well, my goodness, what an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm glad you are here. And as I mentioned, I heard you speaking a lot recently. You have a lot going on. I want to just start with, though, so, you know, if you this shows nationwide, people I, I know, because I grew up in New York. Don't tell anybody. I grew up in New York. <laughs> and I practice law in California, so here we go. But um, people have the picture of Texas as a really rock-solid red state, very conservative things, get done over and over and over. And so, you know, but I, you hear more people concerned about is Texas, we're being pushed by the left, pushed to get, you know, more Democrat people elected in various places. So, to start with, in your time, you've been in the legislature 2007 till now. I'm not going to do math in my head, but whatever that is, Seven, years? 17. It's my 17th year. Okay. So do you see it has Texas changed in that time, in that 17 years that you've been in, in the legislature? No question. It, it is changing. And we recognize that we obviously have a lot of the liberal uh, left uh, trying to uh, really, frankly, compete for the hearts and minds of our young people in this state. Yeah. Uh, you just talked about that in your opening segment. And what's going on with so many children that have not been educated properly, that don't know really what's taking place, they don't know the struggles that Israel faces uh, since this horrific attack in October. And so, yes, we have uh, a very much an alive and well Democrat party uh, in uh, this state that is fighting constantly. And we're always, uh, you know, from a Republican conservative perspective, pushing back. Uh, we all know the importance of protecting this state uh, because if we don't protect Texas, we don't protect the nation. I mean, truly, as you well know, the best hope for America is a strong and bright red Texas. So over the years that I've been blessed to serve, I clearly see more and more Democrat influence, more of the woke left ideas and concepts uh, that are becoming much more common. Uh, I would say a lot of the Democrats that, frankly, that I've served with are becoming, in many ways, uh, more similar to the, the, the Democrats that we see in D.C., uh, more radicalized, uh, with uh, really uh, crazy concepts and ideas that they're trying to espouse and, and push forward here in the state. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that because I feel that way, too. We moved here in the year 2000, my husband in the year 2000, and honestly, it was just, I mean— we weren't here. I mean, my husband grew up in California, too. So, we, you right. know, New York, California. <laughs> we both felt like, wow, we came home. This state is just so, it's filled with not just, you know, rabidly political people, but just common sense, you know, serious, thoughtful, loving, largely church-going, synagogue-going, uh, believing people. And it's also just, it's got an upbeat pro-family uh, pro-life, just, just a really upbeat feel. It has a can-do attitude. And, and I do feel that slipping, just culturally, before we get into the Senate, you do feel that slipping a little bit. You feel more influence from leftist ideas. No, no question. Look, I mean, we're, we're concerned, obviously, about uh, the fact that young people, I think, are getting more and more of these ideologies. I think this is where we're very concerned as conservatives about the curriculum in our schools. We're very concerned about what's happening in our public uh, universities and making certain that, that they're really getting a great education and not indoctrination. <laughs> and those are things, as a conservative Republican, as a member of the Senate, that I'm always constantly monitoring and paying attention to, as are my other Republican colleagues across the state to make certain that we are uh, holding the line properly with regard to educating our people, right? I believe education is a critically important piece of this. If we educate people intelligently and know what's really taking place, 
then I think we'll be a whole lot better off as a society, a whole lot better as a state. But constantly we're in this conflict right now where we're trying to protect the state. No question about that. Absolutely. And you know, I, it's funny, years ago we had an event in our home for some foundation that was supporting Texas. It was, I mean, we first had moved here and I, I kind of was just introducing a speaker and I kind of got going. I, I, remember, I ended up saying, you know, it is like America needs Texas to be Texas. They need, we need to, and, and you know, so the people who are thought leaders here, the people who shape policies and ideas, they're needed by the country to, to keep Texas rooted. hundred percent, hundred percent. Because I think what happens, Debbie, is that you look at uh, Texas from Washington, D.C., from the RNC, for example, right? And you see this big, bright red Texas, and you don't realize how hard we've got to fight every day to protect this state, all the values that we share, uh, that, are hold, that we hold dear, right? I mean, the opportunities for this country really are so unique to Texas. The American dream is unique in that it's only, I think, to be, to be very candid, alive and well today in Texas. But we've got to fight for it. I mean, every legislative session, every year, it gets tougher and tougher. We need to continue to fight to deliver great conservative victories to protect our state, protect the nation. Absolutely true. And, and back to this idea of how the, the world views Texas or the country views Texas, you know, it's kind of funny. Even if you grew up in Texas, Texas has always been a land of, you know, that can-do, self-reliant spirit and upbeat. And you, and you if you, you're not political and you live here, you think, well, this is just great. You don't really think it's something you have to fight for. It's just what Texas is. Yes. And until recently, people thought, well, we're just going to keep on being Texas and these crazy ideas we hear out of California or other places, they won't happen here. But they are here. So I'm going to turn to talk about those. Yes. I see you served in the Education Committee yes. um, in the Senate. So I know one thing you were working on, uh, or the Senate was, and actually the Education Committee, was trying to deal with critical race theory in Texas public schools. And I actually lose track of the bill numbers. You're, I know you're really good sure. at quoting bill numbers. So <laughs> I can't do that. But didn't, did something get through about critical race theory? Well, so yes. Yeah, so in the Texas legislature now, we have passed uh, legislation to ban uh, CRT, both in K through 12 and also in higher ed, uh, this most recent regular session. So, so that's now law of the land in Texas that we have been successful in doing that. Um, and so that's really, you just really put a, a great example of here, the left throws out these wild, crazy concepts. They come from California, they come from New York, they come to Texas, uh, and they try to make a mainstream. And so it is your Republican leadership in the legislature that is pushing back and saying no. Uh, we're not going to allow this to happen, and, and we take action. And so, you know, frankly, unlike uh, Washington, D.C., we're able to move uh, generally uh, very quickly to get things done to protect the state. And that was one of the, I think, great examples that we were able to accomplish here during this most uh, recent regular session here for uh, those that, uh, at the public university level in the state of Texas. Okay. Actually, on that CRT notion, while we're talking about it, time back to my uh, first five topic. You know, if how you're taught in school is to by critical race theory, you're taught to identify, well, you are, you know, Protestant and you're Jewish and you're whatever other thing you are, you're, you're, and, and you're taught to, to categorize people yep. by race and, and national origin and skin color. Then you see people and you assess people, you use that as categories of how you think about things. And, and so it would be easier for someone to fall into that, well, Palestinian's good, uh, Jewish must be bad, because that's how, it's, it's the mindset that's been set for you by critical race theory. Well, that, that's right. And that's why, you know, these labels, these categories are so dangerous. It's so un-American. It's so yes, un not like Texas. And so Texas is just to stand up and say, you know what? We value every human being. If you're a human being uh, in this state, it doesn't matter uh, your race, your religion, uh, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter. You're a Texan. 
And we want to afford you the opportunities, like everyone, to do anything that you want to do in life, right? You have unlimited opportunity, unlimited potential. And so we got to get rid of these, uh, these labels and focus on the incredible promise that Texas provides for each of these individuals that are so blessed to be Texans. Yeah. I saw the line I said uh, in the introduction. I said, Texas is what America is supposed to be. You'd like to have the Texas ideas really be exported. This is what you're describing, these Texas ideas. And, you know, this whole notion of not judging people. We seem like we learned that, you know, in the civil rights movement, not judging people by skin color, but by the content of their character. And, and to try to, it is such a backward step for America and Texas to get down the rabbit hole of pegging people by skin color, race, national origin, or something like that, Absolutely. versus who they are. Absolutely. So, we're, going, we're going backwards as a nation. Yeah. We're going backwards. And Texas has to lead the way. And that's why we do what we did with this topic on, on CRT and standing up to the nonsense and all the other fights that we have. We try to be, uh, you know, forward thinking and take the take Texas in the right direction that strengthens and fortifies the country. And like I said, it's really where the American dream still exists. Yes. I don't think the American dream exists in the vast majority of America any longer, but it does in a place called Texas. Yes, and I tell you, we can be the leader. We can bring other states along with us. They can Absolutely. look at what we're doing and say, let's be more like them. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, on education in the schools, where do we end up on the transgender agenda issues? I, I, I know you, there was a big battle, and I think Governor Abbott signed something good. Yes, what was yes. It? Well, no, okay. Governor Abbott signed a great uh, bill on this topic. I'm very delighted to update you and folks that are watching the show today that we did, in fact, ban those procedures from occurring uh, in Texas any longer for children that are under 18. Uh, and so that was an enormous accomplishment. Uh, I mean, I'm very proud of yeah. our colleagues in the House and Senate that we came together to get that done. Uh, Governor Abbott has now signed it into law. And so we're protecting those children. I mean, Debbie, that was child abuse, pure and simple. It is child abuse. Uh, you know, for someone who wants to do something different in their 20s, uh, you, you know, I can't address that topic, right? They're an adult. Uh, but for those children, uh, that are in the middle of a custody battle between their parents and being pulled one way or the other. They're just developing themselves. Their brain is still developing. Uh, I mean, to have these kind of horrific procedures occur on them as a child is nothing short of child abuse. And so I'm delighted that my colleagues in the legislature, the Republican colleagues in the House and Senate recognize that. We got that bill taken care of. Uh, the governor signed it into law and is now currently the law of the land in Texas, banning those procedures here for, for uh, folks that are 18 and below. Yeah. You say procedures. I believe it covers both banning surgical procedures as well as a just injection of hormones, whatever it is, the, the uh, other yes. treatments short yes. of surgery. Across the board. Across the so board, we're, yeah. we're, we're yeah. blocking any of those uh, uh, pharmaceutical products from being administered, any of the surgical uh, things from occurring. So we're doing all of that. Uh, for minors are being protected now in Texas. So we're very proud of that and we'll continue to do so. That's the right thing to do. Uh, again, it's, it's about protecting traditional values. Uh, we want that, uh, that, that, that individual that is struggling uh, to be protected during their, their child, uh, well, during their childhood, yeah. during their adolescence, and they can make those decisions for themselves later in life. But we're not going to allow those procedures to happen here when they're minors in the state yeah. of Texas. Well, the other thing that bill did, because it was astonishing to me, and it wasn't just Texas, around the country, but that you had parents of these children who were struggling with their identity and parents trying to protect their children and the school actually taking the side of the child against the parent. So this legislation you passed really helped, maybe it directly addressed it, but it really helped the right of parents to be the parent for that child, not let the school interfere with it. No, no, no question it does. And look, we need to always make certain that parental rights 
are first and foremost being protected. And uh, that's very critical in all areas of public policy, that parental rights matter. And uh, that's, that's essential, and we do our very best on lots of policy areas uh, to make certain that's the case. Yeah. Okay, so there are a bunch of issues that I know there's endlessly a list of issues. We, we go on forever and ever. <laughs> well, I was so struck by your speech. Uh, one of your speeches I heard you give last week. Um, There's so many issues, and, you know, you you realize they all could significantly change Texas, change America, if you're not on top of them. That's why, you know, these. I talked earlier in my first five about the importance of parents staying involved in the public schools, and that's why you insist that, you know, truth be taught, and you fight against things that, well, you guys are doing this in the legislature, you're, you're standing with parents and the schools. I want, I'm going to hit, I, I, maybe I'll let you pick one topic yourself, but I want to hit, where are we on election integrity in this sure, state? Sure. Do we have things left to do? Because I think we do, but, and then on border security, because those are things that, yeah. Let's talk about let's let's talk about election integrity first, right? So, look, election integrity is critical to all of us. It's critical to the future of our republic, <laughs> and it's so important that we we recognize that at the end of the day, as an elected official, I've got to give confidence to the American people and to the people of Texas yeah. that when they go and vote for the candidate of their choice, that that vote is accurately being recorded. It's so vital to the future of, of our democracy and our republic. And so for that reason, uh, Texas takes the issue very seriously. Uh, we passed a number of bills during this uh, most recent regular session that deal with election integrity and improving, obviously, uh, the integrity of our elections. Uh, but I'll tell you, this is an ongoing uh, basis uh, that we continue to fight to protect our elections. It's not something that is just stagnant and you walk away from it. And so there were a number of concerns, to be very candid, that we had in the most recent November election dealing with all of our amendments where we had a very low turnout, if you will, yeah. in the public. And yeah. so the fact that we had problems with uh, e-poll books that were down uh, a great deal in Dallas County, uh, the fact that we had some inaccuracies in what was being recorded, uh, I was very concerned with that. In fact, uh, the Dallas County Republican Party chair, uh, Jennifer Stoddard, uh, was sharing with me what was happening online yeah. uh, in real time, effectively, during the whole process of balloting. And it's why we just recently, literally about two weeks ago, had a meeting uh, with our great Secretary of State, Jane Nelson, and yeah. updated her specifically on what was taking place in Dallas County. And uh, we have a great Secretary of State that takes this issue very seriously. She's got a wonderful staff that's highly engaged. Uh, they've been addressing the problems, frankly, in Harris County. There's been a lot of issues in Harris County. Uh, and now they're going to focus their energies now on Dallas County with the issues that we brought up. So we are now in the process of, of having dialogue on a number of specific issues to be addressed. And again, at the end of the day, uh, all we want to make certain is that uh, when, when individuals cast their ballot, they have confidence when they do so that the candidate of their choosing is the one that's actually being uh, voted for. So uh, that's where we are. We want to make sure our systems work and that we have integrity in the process. And again, that's not stagnant. You can't just say, well, we're done with that right, and be done. Right. You've got to constantly be vigilant and make certain uh, that we're making those systems as strong as possible. Yeah, okay, there was a, a movement, I believe the group called themselves Texas First, but they were down at the legislature, um, I was not there, but they were down there making the argument eventually to get to paper ballots only, to get rid of all electronics in, in voting, get rid of, uh, I don't know all the list of them, but everything electronic and just paper ballots only. And I certainly heard the argument that we can't do that overnight, you know, that that's a, that's a big transition. Many, in fact, I think it's a majority of countries in the world go with paper ballots only. 
I used to have the number in my head, but anyway, it's a lot of them. So is that something, a long-term potential to go to paper ballots only? Look, we're having that discussion. You know, uh, my good friend and colleague from uh, Dallas County as well, Bob Hall, uh, followed a bill along those lines. The two of us worked in that regard. I do believe that, uh, again, as I said, we, you can't do enough to restore confidence. Yeah. And, and whatever you're going to do to restore confidence in our election system is what needs to be done. And when you see uh, an election that has very low turnout here, just this most recent November, and you see the fact that the poll books were down 50% or more in a lot of areas in Dallas County, and you see that the numbers are, are bouncing, uh, you see that people are voting that have not been checked in. I mean, some of those things that are factual, uh, I'm not an alarmist, I'm just sharing with the facts, but those are realities. And so uh, we've got to therefore look at these other ways and approaches uh, like I just shared with regard to paper ballot. Uh, I think you can do a paper ballot a whole lot more uh, rapidly than people might say in terms of the yes. counting. Um, and <laughs> as you said, a lot of countries around the world still use a paper ballot system. And so I'm concerned with that. I'm concerned with the fact that you have some of these electronic equipment uh, that frankly now is using servers that uh, are taking the data uh, out of the hands of our election authorities, if you will, to a third party before yeah. it ultimately comes back. Those are all very concerning items for me. Sure. And so we're exploring all of that, and our Secretary of State is concerned, um, and, and I'm very pleased with the review that she and her team are doing uh, as we speak on these items. I'm glad to hear that. I will say, I, I did on this show over the years, I've had numerous election integrity advocates on the show, and some people uh, putting forth data that lays out the way when the entire election is run by electronic filing, electronic retention of the voter rolls, electronic uh, voting electronically, um, everything electronic in it, you end up with uh, bizarre patterns that make you think something is amiss here. And so to me, the, the pressure to, I mean, I, I know there's no perfect system, and if you have all paper ballots, someone... There's know, no perfect sneak, system. No that perfect is true. System. That is certainly yeah. true. Yeah, but the idea that you can have a paper trail that eventually, if you know your ballot was number, you know, 12473, and you know what you voted, and you turn it in, and it's counted, and I know, whatever the process is to count, that you can look later and say, I want to I want to see one ballot 12473 again. You can see it's yours. And you, I mean, that, that ultimately, and I understand, I, I think that everyone concerned about election integrity loves to get the idea of somehow paper ballots only. To me, to me, it's not only the way that it has, it's the least subject to tampering, although it can't be perfect, but it's also, I mean, the people, the voter can check later and say, oh, and my ballot's in the stack right there, and there it is, and it was counted. I think that, that but anyway, you know, I don't know if we'll get there, but I love that there's activism in that. Well, and I love that you, and I know Bob Hall, very receptive in this idea. Senator look, Bob we, Hall. We, we, are, we are being very aggressive and exploring all these options. Like I said, the legislature passed a lot of great bills this session dealing with election integrity. So I want the people of Texas to know that, that yeah. we took a lot of very important and significant steps in Harris County and across the state. I want you to know again that the Secretary of State uh, takes this issue very seriously uh, and that we're really getting a great review and getting ready for obviously uh, November of 24. So we're on the same page and we'll continue to, to monitor and be very aggressive to make certain that we have the very best system in place for the citizens of Texas. Love that. Okay, so for our happy listeners, um, because in other states, the legislature meets endlessly here in the great state of Texas. We have a real session. Uh, it's every other year for six months, and then we have special sessions. I want to hit that topic. So in Texas, we had a session this year, which ended May 31st, I think. That's exactly it is. right, May 31st on Memorial Day. That's exactly yeah. right. So we go for 140 days every okay. other year. And then if there are uh, undone topics, unfinished things, the governor can call special sessions. That's right. That's so right. you're probably more up to date than I am. I think we yes. had 
three. Where are we in special sessions right absolutely, now? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, I've been living it, so we, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have had four special sessions okay. this year. So for those that aren't familiar, we spent more time in session this year than any time in the history of the state. So that was, you know, pretty unbelievable in and of itself. Uh, we had two special sessions that were in the summer uh, dealing with property tax relief, another very important topic. Uh, I'm very proud to share that we provided a, a very large and significant amount of property tax relief to the people of the state, yeah. uh, over $18 billion. And so that's real money for real people. Um, and with the support of the voters in November, uh, they'll be getting that. If you own a home here in Texas, uh, that's real meaningful property tax relief. So if you are under the age of 65, on an average home value at $331,000, you're gonna get about $1,250 to $1,300 a year in tax relief. If you're over 65, uh, then you're gonna get even better. So we take the homestead exemption from 40,000 to 100,000 for under 65, we take it to 110,000 if you're 65 or greater. Uh, and so that will give you in that same value home, $1,450 to $1,500. So real significant relief for those uh, uh, that are struggling. So many are struggling because of this Biden economy. Let's talk about it. Uh, I mean, this kind of out of control spending has led to horrific inflation and everybody's feeling the pain. And that's the reason why it's so important that we have put that in place. And that is permanent relief for homeowners in Texas. So I'm very excited about that. And the other piece of that equation, the bill that I originally started with, Senate Bill 5, provides tax relief for 67,000 small businesses in the state of Texas. 67,000 small businesses we were able to remove from the tax roll. So pretty powerful, very exciting stuff. Well, uh, it, it is backing up the idea of Texas as pro-business. We want to have an economy thriving on businesses, people working, people feeling Absolutely. Suffering. Yeah, I we love wanna, that. We want to be the most business-friendly state. But we also, in those special sessions, tackled outside of these last three and four, talking about education issues. And I'll talk about that certainly, uh, Debbie, if we've got time, but we focused a lot on the border uh, oh, and, yeah. and, and the crisis that we have on the border today. And so, you know, I want people to know here in Texas and across the country what Texas is doing. And so, you know, first and foremost, we appropriated over $5 billion of Texas taxpayer money during the regular session to be able to secure the border. And then here during these special sessions, we've appropriated an additional $1.5 billion. Now look, no other state in the modern history of America has been spending its own resources to secure the border, but we have no choice. It is, it is about safety uh, and security and, frankly, the survival of the people of Texas. And, and sovereignty. Nation. It's about sovereignty. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about sovereignty. Okay. Absolutely. So that amount of money, which I'm, I'm thrilled to hear we're working on in Texas, what's it supposed to go to? What, I mean, what specifically? Assume when you're allotting that money, you're yes. saying this, 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 and not this or something. Yeah. Well, right. look, those dollars are going directly to additional DPS troopers that are there on the front lines. When you see a Texas DPS trooper, thank them for what they're doing. Yeah. They thought they're going to work just traditional uh, cases and traffic duty here in the state. They didn't know they'd be on long shifts working that border and literally, you know, taking their lives in their own hands when they're being yeah. shot at down there. So thank the Texas DPS trooper. So, so one, it's a, it's a dramatically enhanced, enhanced presence, more DPS troopers down there. We have also have a whole lot, a lot more equipment. We have more helicopters, we have more boats, more uh, resources down there to stop obviously folks from coming across the border. We're also building the wall. So Texas is doing that. Thank goodness. Texas is building <laughs> the wall. And yeah. so I think it's enormously important for people to recognize all of that. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I also talk about is that every dollar that we have been spending of Texas taxpayer money, be very clear, every dollar needs to be returned to the American people. And so we demand that from this current administration. 
Uh, I know this administration, obviously, just like they turn a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to the problems there, it's worse than that. It's, it's intentional to hurt this country by keeping this porous border. We know that. We recognize as conservative Republicans what's, what the, the attack on our nation and our values. We realize that the only way to solve this problem is to get a Republican elected in the White House, obviously, in November of 24. You've got to change that. And when we do, Washington needs to reimburse the people of Texas for the expenditure that we've had to secure the country. But there's no more important vote that I take, no more significant thing that we do to secure the protection of our people uh, than taking this vote, because we're stopping not only folks coming across illegally, but we're stopping, obviously, this horrific trade in children. If you look at the number of kids that are being trafficked, it is just ungodly. And I mean, it, it is young children. There are kids as young as two, three, four, five years old that are being trafficked, and we've got to recognize that along with all the horrific narcotics damage uh, that we have in this uh, state that's coming across. It comes over from China, and then it comes across the southern border, and this fentanyl is killing so many of our young people in this state and across the country. So we've got to understand the importance of securing that border, and we're taking it head on. And one of the things that uh, I'm proud to talk to you about, in addition to the dollars that we appropriated, is that I was the author of the Texas Border Compact. It's really the Border Compact for America. And what's so special about it is it doesn't require congressional approval. I want that to be very clear. It does not require the approval of anybody in Washington, D.C. to tell Texas what we can do with the other states. And states are engaged. The other states are engaged. They're going to help bring us resources, financial resources, intel resources, uh, and law enforcement to help us secure the border. Because to be candid, Washington isn't doing anything. I they mean, don't want they're a to hindrance to what we're doing. They don't want to see us be successful, the right. current administration. And, and so Texas has to lead the way as we do in everything, and we're doing so. I love that. I, I'm so glad you're available to join me today because you are just, well, you stay on top of the issues. You're very well informed. It's, and I, I love the border. I always say two things we'll never fix if we don't get on top of it, our election integrity and border security. Everything else, I mean, many issues matter. But if you don't have control of the border and the country's overrun, you, you have a serious problem. Same with elections. If you can't get fair elections that people trust and they will participate in it, and then we actually get the result carried out in the um, after the elections, yeah, you, people give up. These are fundamental the investments in our infrastructure. Fundamental, right. Right? right? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to have them. You've got to do, it. You've got to do both right. <laughs> exactly right. So, uh, Senator Tan Parker, I'm so glad you're available. I want to actually quick, uh, Emilio, can you put the Chiron back up just so we can make sure our listeners know? This is Senator Tan Parker, Texas State Senator Tan Parker, and SD is just Senate District 12. You can find him online, Senate.Texas. You can see that... Um, uh, but you can also go to him on Twitter, at TanParkerTX, at TanParkerTX, because, and maybe there's a simpler way to say your website, but you are running, and so you're going to have an election. Uh, are you up, what's your story? I, I, you I am opposed uh, in, the, in the general election in November of next year. Okay. So I'll have a Democrat opponent. Obviously, I, I want every Republican in SD12 uh, to be supportive of what we're doing and know that my door is always open to uh, talk about these issues and to, and to fight for conservative values, to fight to keep Texas bright red and to fight, therefore, to protect the country. I mean, this country that we love uh, is only going to survive if Texas is strong. And, uh, and that's why we've got to continue to do these things and, and take the fight, frankly, to the Democrats. We've got to take that uh, fight to all the woke left ideologies and nonsense that's coming our way and just continue to be aggressive in what we do each and every day. In every legislative session, we've got to continue to make great conservative gains for this, the state that we love. 
Absolutely do. Senator Tan Parker, thank you for joining me what today. What an honor. Thank you Just so much. Just great to have you. you. So Thanks fun. Thanks for having me. Love have a blessed and wonderful Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You too. Have a wonderful Christmas. And thank, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Me. Thanks for having me. Okay, my very fine friends, you know, I'm going to turn to two other topics, which um, I, uh, maybe only one more, but it's a big one. And I mentioned, I, I teased it at the very beginning, but uh, there's a special prosecutor named Jack Smith, um, who is now, he's taken his, uh, he's taken the issue before he starts the actual criminal proceedings against Senator, uh, against President Trump. He's taken the issue to the Supreme Court. He's asking for a ruling from the Supreme Court on President Trump's effort to uh, assert an immunity uh, for his actions as president. And so, uh, you know, this is a little bit of gobbledygook legal stuff, but I mean, when you normally, or, or what he's trying to say is before we even start this trial, can we get a ruling from the Supreme Court on the extent and the meaning of immunity, a presidential immunity that the president is asserting? The problem with that is because the way the evidence comes out, what questions are asked of witnesses, what documents are introduced. You really don't know in the, at this time before the trial starts what the immunity issue is. You won't, you won't, the Supreme Court is not really in a position to know the uh, intricacies of any particular claim of immunity. Now, there is a presidential immunity. It is a, um, you know, it's not as well defined in law as, as other um, arguments, but it is a, has been recognized by the courts. And this is a really, I think on Jack Smith's part, it's, a, it's an intentionally um, deceptive, isn't the right word. It's, it's a harsh move. It is trying to get a very firm ruling out of the Supreme Court before they even get up to the Supreme Court, uh, before they even get through the trial, to basically try to um, try to uh, limit his defenses, limit his ability to assert immunity, assert um, any. I'm, I'm looking for something I want to share, share with you if I can do it very quickly. Um, in any case, I'm not finding quickly enough. But I do want to tell you one thing I read this morning, which uh, ties to all this. And I'll get back to Jack Smith's case from the Supreme Court. There is a story out, and I mentioned to you on this um, show before. There is a guy named Patrick Byrne. He was a uh, he actually founded and made a lot of money on Overstock. The company Overstock.com was very successful. He built that company. He became very wealthy. We've talked about him on the show before. Patrick Byrne was right in the middle of during President Trump's time. Uh, at, toward the end of his term, he was right in the middle of the election integrity arguments and trying to help bring forth the arguments that there was, there was massive evidence, even at the time of the close of the election in 2020, of massive election fraud. So he was in that uh, ilk of people. He was working with Sidney Powell and, and uh, Mayor Giuliani and others. So he's been in the middle of that. He's also the one, if you remember my show, I'm talking on my show um, several times, he, Patrick Byrne was on the show this past August and then a couple other times before that. But he is one who's been integrally involved in trying to put forth for the American people to understand the things that he, as a kind of high-level insider, learned in Washington, D.C. And um, I don't want to go on the story too much, but if you haven't read this story, actually go back to the interviews of Patrick Byrne on my show. You can go to americacanwetalk.org. Patrick Byrne was the one who was in the White House with then President Barack Obama, with Joe Biden sitting there in the Oval Office in the White House toward the close of 2016. The election hadn't happened yet. Everyone in the country thought Hillary was going to win the election. Patrick Byrne was the one who brought forth the story. He's written it on his blog called Deep Capture, uh, deepcapture.com. Uh, he's told the show, story on my show. He's published it everywhere. He brought it to the Department of Justice. He claims that 
President Obama actually asked him to bribe Hillary Clinton, to bring money to Hillary Clinton, causing her to think it was coming from some foreign power, that she would take it as a candidate, and she did. He did set it up, she did take it, and with the notion that she thinks she's taking foreign bribes, and Barack Obama told Patrick Byrne, the reason we're doing this is because I then control Hillary Clinton. When she's president, I will tell her, you know, I know about the money you took and you're going to do this, you're not going to do that. Patrick Byrne has told this story many times on his Deep Capture blog, on my show. He brought all the evidence to the Department of Justice, laid it out. This is who Patrick Byrne is, a major league inside connected kind of guy. So what he has out right now on his Deep Capture blog, and I want to share it with you because this whole prosecution of President Trump for what occurred as the um, protest in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, and this prosecution Jack Smith is engaged in, I've often thought as a, I mean, I was not a prosecutor. I was a litigator, lawyer, but not a prosecutor. It always seemed so unjustified, so out of the uh, norm of what would be acceptable for a prosecutor to do. And so, but it's amazing. Jack Smith has just got this, you know, he's a bulldog. He's going to get Trump. He's going to take him down somehow. So Patrick Byrne brought out this story, and I want to share it with you. And on our website, you can read the story yourself at americacanwetalk.org. americacanwetalk.org on the homepage under shows, drop-down list of links. It links to this story, which is entitled, Is Extortionist Jack Smith Being Extorted to Pursue Trump? The short story is this. Jack Smith used to be an attorney at The Hague. He was a prosecutor at The Hague. So he's prosecuting international things. Very, you know, kind of high level and kind of elitist and kind of exotic thing to be doing. It's, it's a relatively rare uh, resume to have. So in the, um, at this time at The Hague, there were people who have now come forward and written a whistleblower complaint. It's a 151-page whistleblower complaint. Numerous whistleblowers working at The Hague at the time telling the world what Jack Smith was up to at The Hague, which was, they say, their story is, and, the, and again, in the article I linked, their complaint is written, they're, they're, they're not hiding, they're telling you what they know, what they believe to be true. They say that Jack Smith at The Hague was basically shaking down people who were about to be prosecuted, people around the world. The Hague isn't just, their jurisdiction is everywhere. So he was going to people about to be criminally charged to say, if you manage to get money to me, I won't prosecute you. He was paid in Bitcoin, according to the complaint, and he was essentially taking money from these people saying, you know, this is what you're going to pay me unless you want to be prosecuted by me at The Hague. And so this is a, I mean, this is obviously profoundly, deeply corrupt behavior, uh, certainly illegal in America. I'm going to imagine illegal at The Hague. But the point is, these whistleblowers have come forward, and they're saying, this is who Jack Smith is. This is the lead prosecutor trying to take down President Trump. And he's a guy who not only threatened to, to tell people, pay me or I'll prosecute you, he allegedly took the money. He took the money, and the story in this complaint, these whistleblowers have filed, and they've gone to the FBI. These are not people you know, hiding out in dark corners of the world. They're bringing this complaint forward. They say the one, there's one leader of some country uh, who wouldn't do the deal, who'd said to Jack Smith, no, I'm actually not going to pay you whatever the amount of money was, uh, knock yourself out. And that guy got prosecuted and is in prison. And they, um, the, the, the point of their story is this is a deeply corrupt prosecutor. 
This is someone, I mean, if you discover that happening in America, I mean, I, I hope it's still true in America that if a prosecutor is actually taking money to uh, protect people to say you won't be prosecuted, just make, have your money make its way to my bank account, obviously we would prosecute, we would disbar, we would, we would uh, assuming prosecute, convict, and jail. We'd never allow this behavior. But Jack Smith, according to whistleblowers, engaged in this behavior, and these people have taken their complaint, uh, not just they, they took it to uh, deep capture because they know that actually Patrick Rome will put things out there. He will go ahead and tell what he knows. He is just at this point, he's put all his information he has out there. Um, he just, he, he tells what he knows. Before, I want to tell you one more, two more things that are very interesting about this story. But um, one is that the story I mentioned a minute ago about Patrick Byrne saying that he went to Obama and, 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 and he had, prior to the time he met with Obama in the Oval Office, he did favors for the CIA. They use citizen assets all the time. CIA does. It had him be a citizen asset. Very international guy, you know, lived in China and learned to speak Mandarin. Just this really exotic kind of life uh, history, life resume. So he had been working for the CIA. He's totally non-political. He doesn't like the Republicans or the Democrats, uh, but he helped uh, the CIA and ended up doing this in Obama's office. Well, he, Patrick Byrne, took the receipts, all the story, to the FBI and said, I can show you what I know. Here are the text messages I got. Here's what I was told to do. Here's the receipt for the money I got. Here's where I met Hillary. Here, I mean, he told the FBI all of it, gave him what he had, and they just said, thank you very much. You know. I, they didn't care. They didn't care. Nothing happened. And as I point out many times, Barack Obama's not coming after him. Hillary Clinton's not coming after him. The DOJ is not. No one is going after him for lying, for defaming, for you know making false statements. None of that's happening because they all know it's true. And during the January 6th hearings, Patrick Byrne, who'd been integrally involved in the effort of urging President Trump to look at the content of the Dominion voting machines, Patrick Byrne took out a full-page ad was either the Washington Post or New York Times, you know, dear J6 committee, please subpoena me. I will come in. I will tell you exactly what happened. I'll tell you what we told President Trump. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what everyone said in the room. He's just, he, and they, they don't, they're not interested. Patrick Byrne is, uh, he's very, he's very intelligent, very worldly. Um, you know, he, he's just kind of a, a big figure all by himself. So back to the story that he's publishing now on Deep Capture about Jack Smith. Two things. One is he is positing that Jack Smith, now this is his, you know, clearly speculation, not claiming I know this is true, but this is the speculation of Patrick Byrne, is that maybe Jack Smith is doing this prosecution of Trump, which just is so unjustified by the facts, because he otherwise would face prosecution himself for his conduct at The Hague. I mean, he's, it's a, you know, is he really being told, you, you know, yeah, we're going to turn this extortion on you, uh, so you're going to go ahead and prosecute a guy with a, when the facts don't justify it? I don't know, but that is part of what the speculation is. And I also mentioned something fun. At the close of this article Patrick Byrne put up on Deep Capture, um, he's... <laughs> He closes with this, um, a word of caution to any DOJ, DC, or SDNY prosecutors considering retaliating against me for making this information public. Retaliating against a federal whistleblower is a felony with a provision for 15 years in prison for each occurrence. I am sure you good folks are getting enormous pressure from DC to retaliate against me. But if you step aside, I will make sure no harm befalls you when these traitorous punks get lit. He's basically saying, 
I wouldn't be writing this except I have the goods. I've seen the complaint. I've seen what the DOJ said. And you know, you think about, have you seen this story in any news outlet? Any? I mean, even, I've not even seen it on the more conservatives, but this guy is just out there saying, I know what's going on. And it's a level of intrigue that I normally don't divulge, don't uh, do on my show. I don't dive in like this. But I think the conduct, the attack on President Trump and the absurdity of what the left is doing to him is so outrageous, you do actually kind of have to wonder, um, why is it that that is going on? What, what, why would Jack Smith agree to this? I and mean, he's not a, he's not a, He's not an ethical guy, obviously, but he's got this hanging over his head that what he did at The Hague is now known to the FBI and DOJ. I don't know if that's true, but I do think it's an important story to understand, especially if you've been deluded into thinking that Jack Smith is just an upstanding moral prosecutor and trying to do the right thing for law and justice in America. No, the guy, obviously, if this behavior recounted by the whistleblowers from The Hague is true and put in the complaint, if that story is true, yeah, the guy is not a good guy, and what he is presenting to the Supreme Court uh, should not be listened to. And back to that, we'll have to, I'll follow the story more about what is Jack Smith is saying at the Supreme Court. But I do think it's important to note it is really a it is asking the Supreme Court to rule on the immunity question in some generic way when you don't yet know in what context during the course of the trial that issue will be raised. And you can in the middle of criminal trials. In, in civil trials as well, you can pause a proceeding and ask for, and the trial judge, ask the trial judge to grant your effort to bring an issue that, that must be resolved before the case goes on. The point being, he could go ahead. He, Jack Smith, could start the trial, get to a question of immunity, and if it's ruled against Trump and Trump wants to appeal it or ruled against the prosecutor and they want to appeal it, you can do those in, in limine. You can, you can go up on a narrow issue to a higher court. There's no reason to do this now except what he hopes for, Jack Smith hopes for, is a blanket ruling essentially preventing President Trump from ever raising the immunity issue. It's, it's really a high-level legal intrigue. I, I actually really enjoy it, but um, I think it's actually um, it's, it's not just an interesting thing as to uh, this particular trial and what happens to President Trump, but I think it shows, it shows the depth of determination by, the, by Jack Smith, by our Department of Justice, to do whatever they can to keep Donald Trump out of the White House next fall. Everyone paying attention. We're now, by the way, um, we're basically a month before the first primary. The Iowa caucus is January 15th. So the people who don't want Trump back in power, they're very nervous by this point. They're doing everything they can think of to try to taint his resume or in some way or turn voters against him, this prosecution clearly being one of those means. Okay, I want to just uh, touch on a story briefly, uh, and I'm going to have to embellish on it more later. But, you know, um, we talked about in this show many times about the FISA court. Uh, I am changing topics here, but the FISA court, um, and essentially the idea that the FISA court was originally created by Congress to allow surveillance of foreign agents. That was the point of it, foreign agents. And so during the relentless effort to take down President Trump during his term, the FISA court abused the process and allowed surveillance of American citizens at ju just a breathtaking level. And that was part of, you know, there was a big statement out by the Chief Justice of the FISA Court just saying, I, I am 
I'm shocked by what has been going on within the FISA courts. The willingness to give warrants to allow surveillance of people have nothing to do with the FISA law, nothing to do with foreign agents. So it's a, I mean, they, they have their name already sullied. So right now there's a bill um, in Congress to refund, I mean, they have to be well, unless we get rid of them, we have to refund the FISA court. So right now there's a bill um, that is to fund the, um, the it's uh, the bill number, I get they're calling it FISA 702, but there's basically, they're, they're working on a bill uh, to pass to continue funding the FISA court. And, and just on the topic of the utter astonishing level of audacity by the leftists in this country, given what we know they did during the Trump administration, given what they know they did on spying on American citizens, on what they know, what we know from handwritten notes by John Brennan that they were actually, and knew all along that the Trump-Russia collusion hoax was cooked up by Hillary Clinton and her campaign funded by them and the agents she hired to carry it out. It was John Brennan's own notes that, that said this. Yeah, they, they figured it out early on, and yet they continued. Spy on Americans, attack Trump. And so you'd think there'd be some people in Washington, really in both parties, that would say, you know, this FISA court, this surveillance effort of the American people, it's just a little too much. But no. Right now you have 46, uh, call them deep state officials, Rosenstein, Clapper, I mean, these people intimately involved in what the FISA court abuse already happened, and they have signed on to urge not just the refunding, the extended funding of FISA, but to expand domestic surveillance. Not even kidding. Okay, I'm gonna have to get, I'm out of time pretty much. I'm gonna have to get to this story more uh, in just as soon as I can, but um, I can't get to it today. And then I also want to um, uh, do one more thing before we close, two things before I close and get to why it matters to you. Uh, one is that I wanna thank Brighty on TV. This show is carried by Brighty on TV. I love that the show is on uh, Twitter and Facebook and my website, AmericanBetalk.org and Rumble and just, just every base, every social media place there is except YouTube where I'm not allowed, but we won't go into that again. Anyway, the show is everywhere, but Brighty on TV is a wonderful organization that goes out of their way to give conservative voices more coverage. So brighteon.tv, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N.tv, they go out of their way to give people like me voice. I want to thank them for carrying the show. Go to their website. They have many great shows and Vandersteel, a lot of the really great um, serious thinkers. I love that very much. Uh, and I want to thank them for carrying this show. Um, and I also uh, want to thank Real News PR. I do this show at the studios of Real News PR, Real News Communication Network. They are just a wonderful place. I'm coming up on, I have to count on my fingers, 1920, okay, on five, on almost six years doing the show here in this studio. I really do have to count my fingers. I am so grateful to Real News PR uh, for having these quality studios, wonderful producers, Emilio and all the past producers I've had in the show, just marvelous professional people. Um, I'm just grateful for all of that. And I always want to give thanks to them. So we close the show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today talking about Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism rising. Recent poll of young Americans, 20% of those between 18 and 29 years old believe the Holocaust is a myth. And there's much more of the study than that. It's on our website, but bad enough that. 0% of Americans over 65 say it's a myth. 
This is why there are protests in favor of Hamas. This is why anti-Semitism is exploding. This is, our, this is the price of poor education and CRT, DEI, indoctrination. Secularism cannot preserve civil society. Society must understand the difference between good and evil and choose good. Hamas's barbarity and depravity must be recognized as such and cannot be tolerated under any circumstances. CCP, Chinese Communist Party, support of Hamas should rise alarm bells worldwide, raise alarm bells worldwide. This is why parents must retake control of school boards and school curricula. America must not fail to heed Santiana's warning. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And on special counsel corruption, to say the least, Patrick Byrne has revealed a major corruption story about special counsel Jack Smith. See deepcapture.com for full details or go to our website, americacommunitytalk.org. I linked right to the correct article. The gist from Byrne. Smith was a U.S. prosecutor at The Hague prior to appointment as special counsel. Whistleblowers have documented apparent extortion and blackmail by Smith against various European targets. We'll go after you unless you pay us X in Bitcoin. Whistleblowers have documented that details were provided to the DOJ over 18 months ago, so before he got appointed. Burns' inference or speculation is, could Attorney General Merrick Garland have threatened Smith with prosecution for this? Did he give Smith the option to escape prosecution by agreeing to prosecute Trump with a no-holds-barred ruthlessness that no uncompromised prosecutor would consider? Byrne is a very savvy and sophisticated player and is trumpeting the whistleblower credibility. Is it, excuse me, is his interference, Ray Garland, is his inference, Ray Garland, correct? Silence from mainstream media, so not, so far, silence from mainstream media. And finally, uh, tactical lawfare versus Trump. Special Counsel Jack Smith has gone directly to the Supreme Court for a ruling on whether Trump has presidential immunity from prosecution. SCOTUS has apparently taken the appeal. More common to wait until evidentiary record is established as to what exactly is immunity claimed for pretrial acceleration makes the immunity issue more abstract and hypothetical. This disfavors Trump and Jack Smith knows it. And the Supreme Court knows it. Entire premise of Jack Smith's prosecution of Trump is that Trump lost a legitimate election and wrongfully challenged it. Millions of Americans see that premise as false. Evidence of 2020 election fraud is overwhelming. See Douglas Frank's findings. See Captain Seth Keschel's analysis. See David Clement's film, Let My People Go. See pre-election handling of Hunter Biden laptop, including fraudulent letter by 51 officials. See the use of unsolicited mail-in ballots, utterly inadequate security authentication. See other election law modifications not approved by state legislatures as required by the Constitution. See Nesha Souza's film, 2000 Mules. Will Supreme Court ever address the real elephant in the room, proof of the rigged 2020 election? We're out of time. I want to thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. My show is America Can We Talk. You can find it online at americacanwetalk.org. Every blog post, interview, show I've ever done is right there for your enjoyment. Um, I also want to encourage you to tune in on Thursday, our special Thursday show each week. We have an in-studio audience. We have a full one-hour interview. This week we have Sydney, Sydney Powell coming back in. She's joined us in the past. Uh, she has a lot to tell you about um, and actually about some of the stories you talked about today uh, about the ongoing um, goal for election integrity in this country. She's also been very active as a lawyer uh, and she just had a major win in a FOIA case 
Freedom of Information, getting an amazing piling on or just a discovery of documents out of Moderna about what they knew about their dangerous vaccines before they released them to the public. She is a relentless warrior for truth. She'll join us Thursday. I hope you do too. I do America Can We Talk to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?